your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. Welcome. I'm Joe Schwartz, and I host this show every Sunday afternoon, and we chat about science for about an hour. My day job is as director of McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to separate sense from nonsense. And as you know, there's a great deal of the latter out there these days. Uh, you can... Uh, Text me your questions at 514-800, comments as well, and our phone number is 514-790-0800. And uh, as usual, I will get started with uh, a couple of uh, questions for you. And uh, if you know the answer, you can text or call, preferably call. If all the salt were removed from the ocean, and spread over the entire surface of the earth. I'm going to give you multiple choice here. It would make for a layer that is A, the width of a credit card, B, the height of a person, C, the height of the Eiffel Tower, or D, the height of Mount Everest. So let me make sure you understand. So you know the ocean, obviously a lot of water, very salty. It's about 3.5% salt. If all of that salt were removed from the ocean and spread evenly on the surface of the earth, the question is, to what height would the surface be covered? And again, the width of a credit card, or the height of a person, or the height of the Eiffel Tower, or the height of Mount Everest. Okay, second question. More straightforward. What are poppers? What are poppers? So you give us a call at 514-790-0800 or you can text your questions, comments to 514-800. Let's get down to what I hope is an interesting story. <clears throat> One of the most memorable demonstrations I, I perform in the lecture room, or at least students tell me this, is to simply eat a piece of chalk. I normally do this when we discuss the chemistry of calcium supplements, pointing out that the source of calcium carbonate is irrelevant. Of course, I'm not the first person to take an unusual calcium supplement. That honor belongs to Cleopatra, the Egyptian queen. As recorded by the Roman historian Pliny, sometime during the first century BC, the Egyptian queen wagered her lover, Mark Antony, that she could invite him to the most expensive dinner in history. Now, Mark had some pretty elaborate meals, so he agreed to this bet. And then the appointed moment came. Antony saw a table set with nothing but a goblet filled with a clear liquid. He undoubtedly sensed victory and the spoils that would surely follow. As the Romans' anticipation grew, Cleopatra carefully removed one of her huge pearl earrings, crushed it, and dropped the powder into the goblet. The liquid, which actually was vinegar, 
fizzed impressively as the bits of pearl dissolved. The queen picked up the goblet and triumphantly drank the potion. She had indeed consumed the most expensive dinner in history. The pearl was worth as much as two million ounces of silver. By this act, Cleopatra may also have been the first woman to make use of dietary calcium supplements. Okay, let's get down to the chemistry here. The chemical reaction involved is really straightforward. Pearls are composed of calcium carbonate. That's also the basic component of limestone, of chalk, and of antacids, such as Tums. When calcium carbonate reacts with a 5% solution of acetic acid, that of course is vinegar, a compound called calcium acetate forms, along with carbon dioxide. That reaction takes time, but in theory, the pearl could have dissolved in vinegar and if the resulting calcium acetate solution were consumed, it really would have made for a very expensive beverage. So when uh, calcium carbonate reacts with acetic acid, it forms soluble calcium acetate. That reaction actually was even featured in a plot of the old television show, The Avengers. Some of you, of course, are senior enough to remember that. Mr. Steed and Emma Peel. Great show. Well, somehow a famous pearl accidentally falls into a glass of red wine and dissolves in an episode of that show. That is unlikely, unless it is really, really, really bad wine in which the ethanol has oxidized to acetic acid. Anyway, our Queen Cleopatra had other tricks up her sleeve besides dissolving pearls in vinegar. She used to bathe, so the legend goes, in donkey's milk. This may not have been as nonsensical as it sounds, providing that the milk was sour. For spoiled milk contains lactic acid, and that is what we call an alpha-hydroxic acid, or ALA, which may actually raise some wrinkles. Alpha-hydroxy acids can peel away the top layers of the skin, exposing the fresh, younger skin below. Tartaric acid found in wine serves the same purpose, thereby perhaps explaining the 18th century French courtesan's penchant for bathing in Chablis. Sugarcane also contains alpha-hydroxy acid, called glycolic acid. Could this then be the reason for that age-old Polynesian practice of rubbing the skin with sugarcane? If an ALA is to have an anti-wrinkle effect, concentrations are important. People have reported success in erasing fine wrinkles after a few months of daily treatment if the concentration of the ALA cream is at least 8%. Alpha-hydroxy acids are non-toxic. Furthermore, they do not synthesize the skin to sunlight like Retin-A, and that's the other effective wrinkle-removing product, which of course is available by prescription. There are suggestions that alpha-hydroxy acids actually work best in combination with Retin-A. But should you contemplate following in Cleopatra's footsteps and plunking yourself in the leisurely bath of donkey milk, you would need the riches of an Egyptian queen. Donkey milk goes for about $40 a liter, and you'll have to travel quite a distance to find it. Specialty shops in Cyprus sell it for its supposed health benefits, with, of course, very scant evidence. 
A researcher at the Cyprus University of Technology did follow people who drank donkey milk for months and found they reported improvement with asthma, coughs, eczema, and psoriasis. Well, that's not exactly a clinical trial, but it's interesting, given that the milk of any mammal, such as donkey milk, is uh, closest in composition to human milk, which is known to help build an infant's immune system. Like humans and unlike cows, donkeys have only one stomach and don't rely on as large a variety of bacteria to digest their food as do cows with their complex four-stomach fermentation process. Initial studies also point to more active antibacterial agents in donkey milk. Such bits of anecdotal evidence often excite marketers who are on the lookout for a product that can be promoted as the newest miracle elixir. They got unexpected support from all people. Pope Francis, who revealed that he was fed donkey milk as a baby. Still, donkey milk itself is not likely to take off due to its cost, but donkey milk products may get a boost. Cosmetics that contain the milk and soap made from the fat in the milk are available. And they have their fans with people claiming that beard itchiness and eczema on hands clear up with the use of donkey milk soap. Well, talking about Pope Francis, as, as you know, uh, he had uh, surgery this uh, past week for diverticulitis. This, in spite of the fact that he supposedly drank donkey milk for his digestive health when he was a child. <clears throat> so these stories are interesting, but remember that uh, the plural of anecdote is not data. And in order to know whether or not donkey milk really has any kind of significant effect, whether it be by bathing in it or by consuming it, would need some proper, well-organized clinical uh, trials. But at least uh, there's no risk in uh, trying to consume donkey milk, and uh, there is absolutely no risk in using any soap that is made with uh, with donkey milk. As far as you know, the original story about Cleopatra and the pearl dissolving in in uh, vinegar to win that bet with Mark Antony, or her uh, taking a bath in donkey milk, whether or not that really happened is virtually impossible to say, because although Pliny, uh, of course, is uh, recognized as one of the uh, top Roman uh, historians, we also have to remember that a lot of the reports in those days were based on word uh, of mouth, uh, you know, hand downs. And uh, when Pliny wrote these stories, he was recounting events that happened long before he, he wrote them. And as we well know, any of you who have played telephone when you were young, when you whisper something into one ear and go through a few people, by the time it has passed on to <laughs> through several people, the story has changed. So these uh, verbal hand-me-downs are always suspicious. But nevertheless, they can make for a good story, as you have heard. In any case, it is time to take a little bit of a break. We will check traffic and be right back. Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800.
We can always rely on one of our uh, listeners, Nick, to come up with interesting questions. Say he wants to know if rubbing a pearl against their front teeth can attest to their authenticity. There actually is something to that because real pearls, uh, which either natural or, or made by putting a piece of sand into an oyster, uh, tend to be more gritty on the surface. So when you rub them against your teeth, not against the edge, because that will cut into the pearl, but on the surface of the tooth, you can feel whether it's not gritty uh, because uh, uh, costume jewelry pearls uh, are very smooth and you would tell a difference. But really, uh, if in doubt, it's only a gemologist that can know for sure. Uh, then there's a question of this story that many of you have heard of, um, uh, this accident at, uh, at a... Uh, Aqua Park, where the park had to be evacuated because people were getting sick. And the question is, what happened there? Well, we don't know for sure, but it seems that it was someone inadvertently or just, you know, uh, uh, mistakenly mixing a sulfuric acid solution with bleach. Any time that you mix any kind of an acid, whether it's sulfuric acid, hydrochloric acid, or even just vinegar with bleach, which is calcium hypochlorite, you will liberate chlorine gas, which is highly toxic. And I suspect that that is what happened there because both uh, sulfuric acid and, um, uh, and bleach are used in the treatment of pool water, although not at the same time. And uh, if you mix these two together, you can get chlorine gas. I suspect that that is what happened but uh, we don't know yet for sure. We have to wait until uh, more news emerges. All right, let's just go to the lines for a moment here, see if anyone has an answer to my questions. And Mike was first online. Mike? Dr. Joe, I, I love your show, buddy. You're a genius, but uh, it's so interesting. I was going to call my daughter in Ottawa. I'm in Durbel, and uh, the, my daughter is going to have to wait because your show suddenly came on. Anyway, I would believe the question about the amount of salt in the oceans, sir? Yes. Uh, it's a, at least the height of Mount Everest. No, it is not Mount Everest. Uh, Mount oh, Everest okay. is, of course, extremely, extremely high, right? Mount Everest yeah, is, well, what is it, 29,000 yeah. feet? Yeah. No, yeah. it is not quite Mount Everest. Oh, I, know, I think I know the one, but it's not my turn anymore, right? On that question. Exactly. So that's it. You've had your shot. Go go okay. call your daughter, but only after the show. Yeah. When, when are you going to come up with the other questions question? About the, um, what was that one? About the, uh, what the are poppers? poppers? Yeah. Well, I'm waiting to get an answer from a caller. I'm, so, I, I think I know. Okay. Okay. Go ahead. Sarah. A form of crystal methadrine in a way, like there's a type of speed. People took them as pills way back. I heard about them in the 50s. And uh, a popper is a pill you pop in your mouth, and it's like a hit of speed. So you feel like a euphoric feeling for, say, the afternoon. I don't know how long poppers work for. Okay, yeah. I'll, 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 I'll kind of give you that, even though you have the wrong chemical. Uh, popper oh, is it's actually crystal methadrine uh, in it, but it's like a speed of some kind. Okay, so let me tell you, let me tell you what it is. Well, certainly. Uh, so the term popper is just it's slang for it's a class of drugs uh, yeah. that are related to alkyl nitrites. So it's yeah, a, that's, that's right, the okay. class alkyl nitrites, 
And uh, the most widely sold one is uh, isoamyl nitrite or isopentyl nitrite. Mm -hmm. And uh, these are the same chemicals that are, are used by people who suffer from angina because oh they're God. vasodilators. And mm -hmm. very often they are used um, hoping to get uh, better sexual performance. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're very, very dangerous to, you know, to take if you don't have the medical condition that I, I, I talked about. Mm -hmm. And these are, are sold as sometimes as deodorizers or as leather polish. And uh, sometimes ah. you can pick them up at gas stations. And what they do is, is they cause uh, an involuntary smooth muscle uh, relaxation uh, in the throat and in the anus, which is sometimes why they are used, you know. And, I think and anyway, it's, it's a very dangerous thing to use, but mm -hmm. uh, people looking for some extra sexual activity will sometimes rush into doing this, but do not do it. Do not pop anything. All right, so that's it. That's the problem. It's really okay. So you kind of were on the right track there. But uh, we'll go to William, see whether uh, what he has to say. William. Yes. Good, yes, uh, good afternoon, Dr. Schwartz. I have two questions. The first yeah. question is, how do catalysts work? And the second question is, are there negative catalysts? Uh, yes, but you don't call them catalysts then. Uh, those are substances that poison a reaction, slop, stop a reaction. A catalyst is a, any kind of a substance that can make a reaction, chemical reaction, go faster. But it That's cannot right. make a reaction go that would not go in the absence of the catalyst. So it can okay. only speed up a reaction. Okay. But there are How many diff many different kinds of catalysts. In the body, the catalysts are, are special protein molecules called enzymes. And usually the way these work is that the reactant molecules both fit into the enzyme so they are brought close together so they can react. But there are many other catalysts too. Uh, iron, for example, can uh, serve as, as a catalyst. Many metals serve as, as, as catalysts. So any catalyst is a substance that just speeds up a chemical reaction, but there are literally hundreds of different kinds of, of catalysts. This is a whole area of research and it's a very important area of research because uh, obviously anything that can make chemical reactions go faster is great. One of the best examples of this is the uh, in the stuff in your car, in, in the uh, the platinum, for example, that is is used uh, in order to break down uh, gasoline so that uh, you don't get pollutants being spewed out. And these so-called catalytic converters in your car do exactly that. Uh, they speed up the chemical reactions that will take the byproducts of combustion and convert them to carbon dioxide and, and water. So it's a very interesting area of, 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 of research. And uh, as I said, you know, uh, in the body, it's mostly proteins called enzymes. Uh, outside of the body, catalysts tend to be metallic. All right, oh, let me replace okay, the... Okay, let me replace the questions that got uh, answered by uh, a couple of others. What is the connection between Thomas Edison and the original Yankee Stadium? So I'm looking for the connection between Thomas Edison and the original Yankee Stadium. And here's another one for you. Why, according to a video circulated by the manufacturer, do Ritz crackers have a scalloped edge? 
why do they have this particular edge on Ritz crackers? And of course, uh, we still have the salt question out there. We have eliminated one answer, so it's not Mount Everest. So we are left with width of a credit card, height of a person, or the height of the Eiffel Tower. You're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. We will check CTV News and be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. All right, let's talk COVID a little bit. Because we have to, it is still with us, and there's a question that seems to come up every week. Someone wants to know, how come that the daily COVID count is actually higher than on this date last year when nobody was vaccinated? Well, that is actually not so. What you have to look at uh, are two things. First of all, the number of hospitalizations, that's the critical thing, and the number of deaths. Hospitalizations, if you're following the data, are are way, way down. And uh, we've had virtually no deaths during the the last week. (laughs) Compare that to last year. But in any case, what you really have to look at is not the number of positive tests, but the percentage of positive tests. And uh, uh, the number of tests that are being carried out now and last year are not the same. So, you know, the, the more testing you do, obviously, the more data that you can collect. But if you take a look at percentages, it turns out that the number of positives relative to the total number of tests that are being carried out, that are being seen now, are way down. But anyway, that's not the important thing uh, because a positive test doesn't necessarily mean that someone is symptomatic. What we are really looking for are serious symptomatic cases, and those are way, way down. And deaths, of course, are way down. It means that the vaccines are working, and we need to get even more people vaccinated. Now, another question comes up on whether or not someone who has already had COVID but is not vaccinated, uh, can they still transmit the disease? Well, once you have had the disease, you have antibodies to it. So while you have antibodies, you're not likely to transmit. However, just because you've had COVID doesn't mean that you cannot be reinfected. And that's the scary thing, that it is possible to be to have had COVID, or in fact, even to be vaccinated and to be reinfected. Now, originally, there was a greater worry about this reinfection because it seemed that there were a lot of positive tests among people who already had an infection. But it turns out that you can get a positive PCR test when you still have non-infectious viral RNA, and that can sometimes linger for a while after an infection. But uh, legitimate reinfections after someone has already had COVID are at most 2%, which is a very, very low percentage. Something else that has come up very interesting recently is the possibility of treating COVID with a fecal transplant. Well, I don't want to to belabor this point too much because it's only based on two cases, but it's a rather interesting observation. Uh, People who suffer from uh, C. diff, which is usually a uh, hospital-acquired infection, very serious, 
And uh, there are many treatments available uh, with antibiotics, uh, but fecal transplants have been explored. That is to repopulate the gut with so-called beneficial bacteria from a donor. So a healthy donor's fecal matter is processed and then it is introduced into the, uh, into the gut through the real portals uh, of someone who has C. diff. Well, it turns out that there were these two cases where people were suffering both from C. diff and also had COVID-19 symptoms. And after they got the fecal transplant, the COVID-19 symptoms disappeared. Well, what this means is that somehow there's a connection between the microbiome, that is, all of these bacteria that are found in our intestine, and the immune system. And this, of course, is not a new observation. We know that there's a connection between immunity and, and uh, the, the microbiome. But here, we have some experimental evidence that somehow repopulating the microbiome with healthy bacteria not only helps with C. diff, but also with COVID-19. But again, as I say that this was sort of a, a chance observation. It is something that has to be followed further through a proper clinical trial. But it certainly is not uh, unreasonable to think that, that somehow altering the microbiome is going to have an effect of, on the immune system and therefore on COVID-19. But obviously, this is not yet something that, that uh, can be tried. So uh, I'm not trying to give false hope to someone who has COVID-19 symptoms and suggest that they go for a fecal uh, transplant. But this is something that does need to be uh, further explored. Let's go to the lines and Joshua. Okay, I think uh, that we've lost the uh, the callers, maybe because the question has been uh, answered. Well, we eliminated the Mount Everest, but we're still left with the other three. Uh, but uh, one of our uh, communicators on text has answered that. And indeed, uh, the layer of salt would be as high as the Eiffel Tower. Now think about that. That's pretty impressive. I mean, the surface of the Earth is pretty large, right? Just think about that. And imagine that whole surface covered with salt to the height of the Eiffel Tower. That is a lot of salt. That's the amount of salt that we have present in the ocean. And, you know, this can be calculated because you can make a rough estimate of the volume of the, uh, volume of the water in the oceans. And we know that it is 3.5% uh, salt. So you can make an estimate. And uh, when you do that calculation, it comes out to roughly the height of the Eiffel Tower, which is, uh, I mean, it's pretty, uh, pretty interesting. So we're never going to run out of salt. That's not a problem. Uh, the bigger problem, of course, is our overconsumption of salt. Because as you know, uh, there is a link between salt and uh, high blood pressure. The more salt we have floating around in our bloodstream, the more the body tries to dilute that concentration. And the way to dilute it is to increase the volume of the blood. And when you do that, you, uh, you put more work on the heart to circulate that larger volume. And uh, therefore, it increases uh, blood pressure. Uh, so uh, very often, the first thing that people who have been diagnosed with high blood pressure are counseled to do is to cut down on the amount of salt uh, in the diet. But you know, it is not the salt that you shake out from your salt shaker that's that's the problem. Uh, in fact, that is actually quite little compared to the total amount of salt that we take in. Salt is found in so many processed foods. And uh, 
bread is an example. For example, people don't know that bread contains salt, uh, which it does. Uh, obviously, things like pizza uh, are uh, full of salt. Uh, cold cuts are full of salt. Cheese can be uh, very, very salty. Uh, the only way to know whether or not uh, there is salt, sodium is, of course, the problem. Salt is sodium chloride, but it's a sodium ion that is the, the issue here. The only way that you can know that is by looking on labels. Because these days, the uh, law is that the amount of uh, sodium has to be listed on the label. So what do you look for? In terms of sodium, the daily intake should be under 2,300 milligrams, preferably significantly under. It should be around 1,500 milligrams at, at most. Now, that's just sodium, not salt. So make sure that when you're looking on the label, you're looking for sodium and, and uh, not salt. The amount of salt, of course, will be more uh, because sodium is only part of the uh, salt. So you're looking for... Uh, daily consumption of less than 1,500 milligrams of, of sodium. And uh, when you peruse labels, you will see how quickly you can uh, add up to that uh, because, as I said, it is found in all kinds of, uh, of foods. All right, so we've still got a, a couple of uh, uh, questions uh, hanging uh, out there. Uh, what is the connection between Thomas Edison and the original Yankee Stadium? And why, according to a video circulated by the manufacturer, do Ritz crackers have a scalloped edge? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can text to 514-800. Right now, we're going to check for traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. You know, one of the most disturbing things in science is fraud, and it happens. Uh, you were all familiar, of course, with Andrew Wakefield and his fraudulent paper linking uh, vaccination to autism. But now there's a, a concern about COVID-19. You know, there's been a lot of talk about ivermectin, which is a drug that has been traditionally used in animals to, for treatment of parasites. But uh, there is a belief that it is also an almost miraculous medicine for COVID-19. And it's been popularized all over the internet, especially by people like Joe Mercola, who runs a, a very large and very bad internet site. Uh, but now the disturbing thing is that the study on which that advice has been based looks like it was fraudulent and it has been withdrawn from publication. This was a study that was carried out by a group of doctors in Egypt with the title, Efficacy and Safety of Ivermectin for Treatment and Prophylaxis of COVID-19 Pandemic. And it seemed to be a very, very interesting study on face uh, because uh, they recruited over 400 people who had COVID-19 and um, they contacted about 200 of their close contacts and supposedly randomly allocated them either to get ivermectin or a placebo. And surprisingly, uh, the study found that people treated with ivermectin were 90% less likely to die than people who got the placebo. Now, if that were true, 
this would be an amazing, amazing medicine. It turns out that there are many, many questions about this study, including the possibility that this study never took place, that is totally fraudulent. Now, I can't get into the details, but of course, the details have now been published of why the belief that, that, that this is fraudulent. Uh, experts have looked at the data and found that uh, it doesn't really make sense in terms of the, the calculations that, that were done. Uh, also, the introduction has been shown to be uh, at least partly plagiarized from other, other places. The standard deviations that they calculate from the data don't make any sense uh, whatsoever. Some of the patient data seems to be duplicated uh, so that some people are being counted twice. Uh, there are many, many questions about the, the, the way the data is put together. And a number of experts now have perused this and have concluded that uh, at best, uh, there are many, many mistakes that were made uh, in coming to the conclusion. And at worst, the paper is totally fraudulent, and the study actually never even happened. And uh, the paper was withdrawn, quote, for ethical considerations. And this is uh, something that we now have to follow up quite carefully, uh, because there are many, many people around the world who are being treated with ivermectin based essentially on this study, because this was the largest study done on, on ivermectin. And it is uh, being promoted also by many of the right-wing groups, and, uh, you know, uh, suggesting that, that uh, pharmaceutical companies want to keep this uh, ivermectin uh, uh, treatment uh, under wraps uh, because it is so cheap and they can't benefit from it. And now it turns out that this treatment is most likely to be uh, uh, fraudulent. There are a lot of people who are concerned about intestinal gas, Right. And especially after they've eaten traditional gas-producing foods like cabbage, kale, broccoli, beans, and even some fruits. And that's because these foods contain some specific carbohydrates like raffinose, tachyose, or sorbitol, which defy digestion. But they are readily consumed by bacteria in the gut, and these bacteria then spew out gases. So to reduce this effect, carminatives come into play. And that's from the Latin word carminare, which means to cleanse. And indeed, what you want to do is cleanse these substances from the intestine, the substances, you know, the, that, that cause gas. There's a lot of anecdotal evidence about carminatives and even some uh, clinical uh, trials. There are numerous herbs that are reputed to have anti-bloating properties with peppermint and dill ranking high. There are a couple of mechanisms usually postulated, uh, both revolving around the essential oils of these plants, which are mostly terpenes like menthol or, or thymol. And in this context, essential doesn't refer to importance, but rather that they make up the essence of the plant. The one idea is that these essential oils interfere with the surface tension of water, and uh, therefore they... Uh, allow when bubbles form they allow the bubble to to pop more easily so whenever a gas bubble tries to form because the surface tension of the surrounding water has been altered the bubbles pop the other possibility is that these essential oils lead to some relaxation of smooth muscles such as we have in the anal sphincter which means that there is no way for large amount of gas to build up 
because slow, uh, slowly the gas is being released because the sphincter muscles are in a constant state of, of relaxation. Anyway, there are commercial products like cymethicone that reduce surface tension, uh, but there are also these, these plant products like oil of peppermint, dill, ginger, fennel, and carb cardamom, which are very popular. And uh, those of you who have kids will remember gripe water, and that commonly contains essential oils. So that's the, that's the story here. And you may have heard uh, the possibility of adding dill seeds to your cabbage while cooking to avoid gas formation. So there is, essentially could be something to this because essential oils uh, of the dill are liberated uh, with heat and they may have a flatulence reducing uh, effect. We're almost out of time here, but let me try to squeeze in Al. Hi, Al. Uh, hi, Dr. Joe. Thanks for taking my call. Uh, Joe, you, you mentioned, uh, Dr. Joe, you mentioned a little earlier uh, about salt, and that, that tweaked my, uh, my interest. So I went in the pantry where I found a box of, uh, well, Sifto table salt, and I read the nutritional facts label as well as the ingredients, and I'm a little confused, and here's my question. When it comes to ingredients, uh, it states that there is salt, calcium silicate, sodium trisulfate, and potassium iodide. Well, that's fine, but then the nutritional facts goes on to state that per 1.5 gram serving or a quarter teaspoon, there is zero fats, zero calories, uh, zero protein. That's all well understood. However, this is where I'm confused. Uh, the nutritional fact states that for sodium, uh, 590 milligrams, there is only 25%. Uh, that's what I don't understand. Can you please explain? That's 25% of the daily value. And as I said uh, earlier, 2,500 milligrams is what is normally regarded as the daily value, the amount that maximum amount that you should take in. So uh, if you look at the 500 or whatever, that's about 25% of the uh, daily value. But I think that that daily value is actually too high. I think we should be taking in less salt than that. Okay. So anyway, uh, we're almost out of time here. The Ritz cracker question hasn't uh, been answered by a caller, but someone texted me the correct answer, and that the supposition is that they turn sideways, the cracker can be used as a saw to saw into cheese, a thin slice of cheese, so that you can divide this slice of cheese carefully and put it on a Ritz cracker. Anyway, that's what the Ritz company says. But we are smack out of time. We'll be back with you same time next week with some more interesting stuff. And those of you who want to be on my mailing list for my daily three-minute videos, you text me at joe, J-O-E dot, S-C-H-W-A-R-C-Z, at mcgill.ca, that's joe.schwartz at mcgill.ca, and I'll put you on the mailing list. Otherwise, we will see you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping that all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>